0: What's going on? This is Quincy Valentine. and Welcome to the Valentine Experience. And no, I'm not going to give you the good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I mean, at this point, you kind of get the gist of what I do. Um, I want to welcome back all the people that has came back for Episode 7. And the ones that have not chosen. I do appreciate uh, you taking the time out to even get to this part. Um, Episode 7, obviously, is... uh, It's a little bit different, uh, than the previous episodes, but I give you that, you know, from time to time, uh, seven, obviously meaning the, the number seven meaning spiritual completion. So, um, as I get to episode seven or has I arrived to episode seven, uh, I feel a lot more complete. I feel at ease sitting behind this microphone and kind of uh, just having a conversation with myself and you guys come along for the ride. Um, obviously, uh. It's been uh, breaking news when it comes to uh, um, Rashard Brooks' uh, killer. He's actually been indicted on ten different charges, and I kind of want to just start it right there um, because it's it's a it's a jump back to the previous episode, um, and then it's it's kind of like okay, there's some type of progression, uh, there's some type of movement, and it's not it's not a uh, a big one, but it's a little step. Towards um, trying to get this man convicted for brutally murdering a man that was unarmed, and um, he clearly was inebriated. So uh, we need to get these monsters off the streets. These uh, these slave catchers—that's what the fuck they are. the slave catchers—they are—they <laughs> are your bullied, intimidated kids that grown up and their balls dropped, so they wanted to be fucking cops. And not to bash all cops, you know, I mean, there are people that don the uniform that are are yeah, yeah, slightly decent. And the only reason why I say that is because I do have a cousin that is the chief of police in New York. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what city he's the chief of police, but he is the chief of police. So, I mean, as far as like having family ties to uh, people in authority. Um, I do have those tides, but I still have my reservations due to the fact, obviously, the things that I've experienced, um, me personally being, uh, beat by cops when I was, uh, younger, um, and then being accosted by cops leaving out of a party, uh, and it's not to kind of just jump into it, but, um, I had an interesting situation when I was about 17, uh, my partner, um, his name was RJ and he uh, we were actually walking up the street from a party and the party got a little rowdy um and it's not for me to say well you know somebody didn't deserve to be arrested but they were hurling um they were hurling uh bottles at the police officers and as they hurled bottles at the police officers um I'm walking up and they were like where are you going I'm like I'm going home And, you know, me and my partner, RJ, they were like, I, mind you, I've had facial hair for, what, since I was like 14. And he was like, how old are you? I was like 17. They said, he asked my partner, how old are you? 18. Oh, cuff him, they did it. No Miranda rights, red, no nothing. Just cuffed us and threw us in the back of the car. And all I can think about is like my mother and like, like how disappointed she would have been, you know, me being arrested, but. get down there and they put me through central booking and all that stuff. And being at the age of 17, you don't know much about life. You don't know much about anything. And me being arrested at 17 years old um, for something I didn't do, um, it it left a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, I mean, obviously I was acquitted of the situation because You know, there was no evidence to back up, you know, what transpired. The cop never showed up to court. It was just like, you know, some bullshit, but it traumatized me. And then later on in life, me experiencing um, incarceration for real, like it, it put me in a, it put me in a a very dampened place. And I will honestly say that I would never wish, um, I would never wish jail on somebody. And, and I say that because it is not a correctional facility. It does not correct behaviors. It does not. It does not do anything that's going to be beneficial to the person that's incarcerated. All it is going to do is amplify the behaviors that this person had previously before they 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 got into that uh, situation. Um. So if that person was said a killer, or a rapist, or anything the The way the prison is designed, it is, it is made up to amplify those behaviors because you put us in stressful situations. Uh, the people that are in there, they're not giving books. There's no educational, um, and, and a lot of people are like, well, they don't deserve all that stuff. But if you're putting into a correctional facility, the whole purpose of being put into a correctional facility is to correct said behaviors. But if you don't give me the resources to utilize that, you leave me alone with my mind. And I mean, we're not we're social creatures. And me personally, like I. I will honestly say that I'm asocial, but for the most part, most people are like this quarantine has taught us that we are social people. So being put in a four by six cell and put in there with another grown man and testosterone going, it's it's. It's going to turn into a clusterfuck, and that's what it is. The jail system, the the whole premise of the jail system should be torn down um, at the seams, and then we turn it into educational facilities for these people that have committed bad behaviors. We don't have those things, and what we're getting consistently is a constant influx Right. We pay our debt to society. And then once you pay your debt to society, you want to put a permanent stain on me and say that I'm damaged goods. So now it's perpetuating a cycle that um, that you're going to constantly go through. And the problem is with this is that if I go to jail. Right. And then they release me early. Then I get on parole or probation. Right. They say go find a job. Right. But then all employers don't hire felons or people that have been in jail for an exponential amount of time. So now you're put into another situation where you have to do whatever you need to do to pay said fees each and every month to probation or show that you're working at a reasonable place so you don't go back to jail. Mind you, these, these, these prison industrial systems are, are antiquated. You lack resources. You're getting private funding from the state, and we're still being marginalized and treated as such. Like it's, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Um, watching how the COs mistreat the inmates and how the inmates interact with each other, it's, it's crazy. And it's not for me to be a Debbie Downer or make anybody feel anything uh, that or feel less than. It's just for people to understand that me personally, based on what I've seen uh, from my father being in jail for an exponential amount of time, from me uh, temporarily being incarcerated, for me to see these things and see like my father... I'm at my father now and he still hasn't adjusted fully to society. He's three years removed from prison and he still hasn't adjusted society. He's when I have conversations with him, he goes in and out and that's he, he, he essentially has PTSD and it's crazy because I think in all walks of life, as far as like being a, uh, a black male in society, me personally, um, I'd seen my first person like, like drop dead and when I was like, I think I was like 13. It was a situation where I was walking home from school. I was walking to my cousin's house and I heard two gunshots and the car just sped off and I seen old boys just drop to the ground and it just blew my mind because it's like, I started to laugh, but it wasn't a laugh like oh my god like this is funny. It was a laugh like I cannot believe this just happened. It was a nervous laugh and I can see him just bleeding out and I can hear the ambulance coming. And for a moment everything froze. Like I didn't I didn't understand it. Like it didn't register to me what transpired with this man, like his life is leaving his body. It I could never I could never fathom it. And it blows my mind that I deal with, like, PTSD on a daily basis. I mean, just being black in America, you, you start off playing defense. And the offensive skills are not taught to us. And when I say the offensive skills, I mean, I didn't learn about financial literacy until i was in my late 20s like understanding exactly how to manage money right and they're like well you in your late 20s you should have learned that but you got to understand that in in life financial literacy on credit and stuff like that is not actively taught to us um I look at my mother. She she worked from check to check. I look at my grandmother. She was a business owner, right? So she understood finances and how to how to utilize it and how to capitalize and uh, what exactly residual income looked like. My grandfather, God rest his soul, um, he also understood financial literacy. And I look at my uncles. My uncle's Um, I love them to life and they understand financial literacy and how to optimize off of a dollar. But, um, my grandmother had five children and you had, you had two adult males. They were the two oldest. They were about a year apart. And then you had my aunts and then my mother, my mother being the baby of the, um, for the the bunch. Um, my mother, like, uh. Is a very interesting is is a very interesting character because she understands a lot of stuff, but she can't convey it where you can utilize the resources. So growing up, it was like, oh, I have all this information, and this can help you. And I'm like, all right, cool. How do you apply it? Right. It's kind of like okay. I can tell you about 609 letters all day, right? And I challenge anybody and everybody to go look up what a 609 letter is. A 609 letter is a way to dispute anything that's on your credit report and to use the verbiage that you have to use. There's a specific way you have to say things in order for the major credit bureaus to actually remove that account off of it, off of your uh, credit. And it will boost your credit immediately. Um it's going back to resources and understanding. And my mother knew a lot of information but she didn't know how to convey it. So it was like, here's all this information. Here you go. And I'm like, being a young man, it's like how do you apply it? How do you how do you really go about um dispersing this information or dispersing it to other people? Or, A, internalizing it and, um, and analyzing it, dissecting it the way you need to so that it can be beneficial to you uh, for the long haul. And um, it was never, it was never, like, conveyed to me. So, a lot of times, like, I grow older, obviously. As I become an adult, I became a father. I started to learn a lot more things and I can credit that to a specific someone, um, for, for getting me to understand how to utilize, um, my, uh, my talents as well as expand and profit and monetize the things that I do. Uh, she has been a, uh, A consistent, a consistent fixture in my life that has helped me get to the best, to get to the best version of me. Um, And then I took the resources that were given to me and then I became the best version of myself. Um, So the information that I... I get now, I understand how to dissect, internalize, and then break it down and then disperse the information in a way that others can pick it up with ease. Um, <laughs> it's it's even interesting just listening uh, now to myself and how I'm speaking on it because um, the information that I'm, I'm like, as far as like the books that I'm reading, Uh, The Four Agreements by uh, Miguel Ruiz. Um, And then I'm reading a book on depression. And uh, I think I've spoken on it on a couple occasions about me dealing with depression and um, how I internalized it and how I dealt with it or tried to deal with it and lack thereof. Um, It's been a uh, consistent battle. I deal with it to this day but not as amplified as it used to be um because i'm i'm finally happy with the person that i am uh <laughs> the finally happy with the person that i am when i look in the mirror um so what i advocate towards is uh is is a uh, self improvement and being the best version of yourself and whatever that looks like uh your your sliding scale your, barom- your barometer on what you deem success to be is all predicated on how you see yourself and what you feel your limits are, or if you even have limits and how do you get there and how do you be, uh, oh, I said, how do you be, uh, <laughs> how do you get there and how to be the best version of yourself? Um, you guys, uh, stay blessed until the next segment. Uh, I gotta pay some bills and I'll be back. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? So we're back. Just had to pay some bills. Uh, So uh, I'm like most people uh, in the evening. uh, Have my nightcap, have my whiskey. um, And I watch TV, right? Um, So I'm watching, I'm just watching a couple of movies and stuff like this. And I started to notice a pattern. Um... I don't know if you guys know, but I'm a huge movie buff. I have easily seen about 18,000 movies in my life. I probably can't recall all of them, but I do have my faves. Um, I'm an advocate person of uh, anything black. I root for anything black. That's just how I am. Um, But just watching the colorism in a lot of movies. Uh, I was watching House Party. And House Party is easily a black, like, it is a black classic. It is a staple in black culture. So I'm watching it, and I'm watching Sydney and Shireen. And the colorism is always, like, it's subliminal, but then it's at the forefront. So, for example, um, Kid. And play. Obviously, we're in the same movie. Kid is the good one. He goes to school, gets good grades, gets in trouble from time to time. Play don't got it together, but he's suave, debonair. He is the sex symbol of the movie. Then you look at Shirain. Shirain lives in the hood. Everybody's in the living room. They drink Kool Aid, right? And then you look at Sydney. Sydney lives in two-story home. Uh, I wouldn't say a father's an aristocrat, but uh, he's well-off, and he owns uh, several markets. And I'm just watching this, and I'm just like, this has been a proverbial thing that they've constantly did. So I'm like, eh, maybe I'm just like, eh. So then i watch Martin. Right? Tisha Campbell's in that as well. Right? Martin is a DJ. And the tall black guy, Tommy, right? He has no job. Wow, right? Cool, 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 cool. So maybe I'm just bugging. So then I look at Gina and I look at Pam. So I'm like, well, Gina and Pam both work at the same uh, uh, av- uh, ad um, agency. So I'm like, maybe it's just that. No, Pam can't keep a man for some reason. And her breath always stink. Per the show. But again, Tisha Campbell's character, Gina, has it all together. Her father and mother are doctors. I'm saying all this to point out how Hollywood consistently looks at us. And they look at us that, that way so much so that you see it on our everyday everyday life. Um, for, uh, for example, uh, a couple years ago, there's constantly dark skin versus black. Or if you look at memes, you see, this is how light skinned pictures, this is how light skinned men take pictures. This is how dark skinned men take pictures. And it creates, it creates sub genres or, uh, separatism within the black community. And our beauty is not embraced within ourselves. And we automatically, Go back to oppressing one another because of the way we may look. It's the house nigga versus the field nigga. It's just now it's team light skin versus team dark skin. What we'll looks better, right? Um, we make it so synonymous that light skinned men are not or more prone or to be, they're softer than dark skinned men. Um, Me being a dark-skinned man and seeing that, but then my mother being light-skinned. I have light-skinned friends, but then I have my dark-skinned friends. And what's synonymous with being light-skinned is, oh, you're a pretty boy versus when you're darker. I remember when I was in um, middle school, and (laughs) I think I said it before, but I was a little chubby boy, and I had an Afro like Norbert. And I remember this girl, like she was talking and we were having a conversation. And then her friend came over there and was like, I don't even know why you're talking to this nappy head little nigga. He ugly as fuck. And I was taken back. Like I was hurt. Like all of me was hurt. Like I was, I, I couldn't get it together because I was like, damn, why'd she call me ugly? So my first response and no, I don't call women bitches, but I was like fuck you fuck you ugly bitch. And then later on that year, I I found out that she was like, oh, I don't like dark skinned guys. So that wasn't personal against you. It was just like, I don't like dark skinned guys. So because I don't like dark skinned guys and you were talking to my friend, I just felt as though I had to jump in and kind of save her. That's the oppressed, oh, the oppressed, oppressing the oppressed. Like, it's just, it's something that's, that's, that's woven into our fabric that we have to break. Um, we don't look at each other as one cohesive unit. We look at it sub. Uh, it's kind of like uh, when I look at Christians or Muslims. When you have, you know, you have your Sunni Muslims versus your Shihai, right? Or you have your Pentecostal versus your Baptist, like your Seven Day Adventists. They, if you practice something or something is you, you have to find a way to 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 work together and be cohesive. And what I noticed um, about that is that we. We look forever every opportunity to be more superior than the other. And that's something that was learned behavior. And any, anything that can be, uh, anything that is learned, it can be unlearned. So um, I said all this to say that we have to be better. Uh, we have to love each other. And um, we have to look for opportunities to lift up each other. Um, we shouldn't allow colorism to beat us in the ground. And there's a lot of stories that I can tell you about colorism, but I won't. Um, it's just to get you guys to understand and open your eyes that we're we're, we're working on the same side. Um, the only difference is that, you know, the slave masters visited your grandmother, grandmother, grandmother's quotas and didn't visit mine. And that's the only difference. Um, and that's not a knock on you. You're not, you're, you're, we're not, we're not any different. We're working with the same struggle. Um you just your melanin is just a little lighter than mine. So we have to work together to be brothers and sisters in the eyes of the universe so we can so we can move forward. Um and we have to stop being scared of one another. That like we my black is no different than your black. Um my struggle is not going to be no different than your struggle. So when I say this it comes from uh, a place of love and appreciation and um we got to be better we have to be better with protecting our, our 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 most prized possession our gods our goddesses um our black women the ones that from the beginning of time has always always advocated for us that has always loved and appreciated us um who are we to downplay and and make them feel less than? The black woman deals with so much. And they're the most educated in the United States. You understand? I, I need you guys to understand what I'm saying. They are the most educated. Right? But they are the least respected, the least paid. Right? Nobody hears their cries. But they advocate and love us no matter what. And they push for us to be great. The problem is that they're asking for us to be accountable for our behaviors and we refuse to do so. Um, I think we are the, and you got to understand that their frustration comes from, you got to think about this. They are the only, they are the only ethnicity that out earns their counterpart, their husband or their or their partner, they out earn them. No white man. They don't and you can look it up. There's no white there's no white woman that out earns the white man. There's no Chinese woman that out earns. But when it comes to black women they do. So the thing is like they're so hard on us because they want us to be the best version of ourselves. You can't walk around and want to have the king status but not follow up with what needs to be done and make those power moves for you to be the best version of you. You got to stop calling them bitches, hoes, stots, fuckers, whatever you call them, you need to stop. We, we're at a place where we, we can be at the precipice and we can work as a unit. but you have to understand that you have to honor the ones that have been there. Even when things haven't been the greatest, um, and this is speaking from personal experience um i wasn't always appreciative of the black women that i've encountered so this is i wouldn't say a formal but an informal apology for not being for not for not taking heed to a lot of things that i promised myself to do to follow through with um i wish more brothers would understand and be more empathetic because not only do women deal with the bullshit from the toxic uh white culture, white male establishment but then they come home and they deal with us too. It's 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 astonishing um when you have so much time to yourself and start to see the errors of your ways and You can't change anything unless you're willing to change yourself. You guys have been awesome. This has been uh, a very therapeutic podcast for myself. I hope others find uh, a little bit of salvation in this. And I appreciate this. Again, this is episode seven, and I'm out. My daughter missing me, nigga, the whip is repel it, but they gon' kill me with tax. Niggas really don't they ain't checking the stats. Who a decade a better, give niggas decade a rap. Respect is in order, hate me better, do it loud, oof for everybody black. Haters say that's crazy, wow. it's crazy. Wow.